founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Vishal Sunak, CEO and founder of LinkSquares. LinkSquares is the company behind the fastest growing AI-powered contracting platform for legal teams. Named among the 2020 Gartner Cool Vendors for Contract Lifecycle Management and Advanced Contract Analytics, LinkSquares is used by more than 600 plus legal teams. From graduating with a BS in engineering from Northeastern University and an MS from WPI, Vishal has gone on to accomplish a lot. Vishal is widely recognized as a change agent in the legal tech space where he has worked tirelessly to improve outcomes for legal teams while elevating their visibility within the enterprise. In 2021, Vishal was named an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year and achieved Inc. 5000 status for Link Squares in 2021. Here to share all that experience and knowledge is Vishal. So Vishal, thank you for being here, my friend. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me. We had a lot of mouthfuls there. Um, <laughs> You're going to have to help me. We took, our, we took our stab at kind of understanding your journey and who you are and how you did this, but take us back. How'd this company get started? Yeah, my co-founder and I were working at a tech company uh, in Boston, and that is a smaller company, private company, right? Got bought by a bigger private company. And so there was this kind of transaction that occurred during the transaction, like bigger companies ask the, their target, right? The company, they're buying lots of questions and one of those questions was centered around contracts. Like, what do we agree to with, with having you know, thousands and thousands of customers? Like, could we move their data off of the data center that you, you're, you're using and what we need to migrate them to for like cost cutting and things like that? And so it really shined a light on contracts as being so vital. It's so vital to like really everything, how you do business with vendors, how you do business with suppliers, how you do business with customers. And it's all contained in these documents, right? And the ability to know what's inside these documents is so crazy hard because you can take third-party paper, right? So that's not your contract. You're, you're actually using someone else's contract. Like bigger companies do that to smaller companies all the time. Then you can have your contract, like a services agreement or a terms of service to use a, a SaaS product and it can get negotiated. So it's just a little bit different and, and there could be differences in major points. And so we struggled to produce the answers to the company that was buying us, right? And it was a light bulb moment that said, well, we're not that different. We're a series B venture back company experiencing high growth with thousands of customers. Well, who, who else is out there feeling the same sort of pain? That's how we got started. I love that. So you had a company that you were exiting in the exiting process. You saw a problem that you imagined, you know, many people must be experiencing where did you go from there? Like, how did you actually go about solving that, sure. that problem you saw? Yeah. And so we, so we, we were eventually kind of obsessed with the idea around like knowing what's inside executed contracts, right? These are things you've already signed up to, right. And signed up for as a business enough people that were like mentors of us and, and, and just smart folks started nudging us towards this role inside of a company that Backupify, the company I worked at and my co-founder, we just worked there, right? We didn't have, we didn't have a general counsel, which means we didn't have an in-house legal team. But enough people were like, hey, you know what? At bigger companies, 
the general counsel is actually responsible for this. And it was so super interesting that it's like, okay, Chris, <clears throat> general counsel, how many general counsels do you know? And he's like, I know zero. And I was like, I know zero also. So we did the only sensible thing, which was buy 25,000 emails of general counsels that we mined off LinkedIn through a, a great team. I think they're in Pakistan or something. Perfect. And we, we paid, I don't know, 50 cents a record or whatever. We spent 12,000 bucks and we bought these uh, names of general counsels. And then we, we wrote a four email sequence. And it was very much like, hey, you don't know me. I'm Vishal. I'm the founder of this company, uh, Link Squares. I used to work at a company, went through an acquisition. We didn't know what was inside our contracts. Does this sound like you? Does this feel like you have this problem? Like, how do you know all the contracts that have like termination for convenience in it? Could you recall that information really quickly in like a report or some sort? And the hand raises started from people just saying, I'm interested. Just tell me, like, let's have a call. I mean, we didn't have anything to sell. Mm. We spent a year just doing customer discovery and we kind of set the big goal that says we are not going to build software, which again, it's against my nature because I'm a software built, like I'm a software builder. Like that's what I love to do. A really long, hard year, Drew, if I were to, if I were to categorize it uh, <laughs> in one word, really long and hard. Uh, but we said to ourselves, if we, if we take a product and spend money and get it to market too quickly, then we're going to be in a scenario where we're going to build the wrong product. And that's a, that's a really bad thing, right? So we started talking to general counsels and kind of one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. We start learning more. And then like, this is like an actual real no shit problem that businesses have. And then we took an AI journey then the years to come, which is like, could you build an algorithm that could read the contract and tell someone what's inside it to save them the time to actually read it? Because no one, has any of this data, this metadata about what's in a contract. And, you know, fast forward today, we, we can do almost 200 pieces of contract metadata without any work on the customer side in 20 seconds on any one single file, 20 seconds. And it's just been like this great innovation journey, kind of working hand in hand with our customers to, to help steer us and guide us. And it's been super fun. And, and um, again, a lot of the attributing success is that one year where we made $0 we both quit our jobs. It was like a really long, hard year. Both of our girlfriends at the time then turned into our wives. And so we still go back and, and, and recall those um, on some nights, maybe over a bottle of wine where it was like, remember how hard those days were? Like we were just fumbling in the dark, looking for a door handle. <laughs> like, yeah. And eventually we were able to find it. So it was a pretty awesome journey and a hard one, like most journeys are. Absolutely. I want to stay in that first year just a little bit longer. What what in particular were the most difficult aspects of that year? Kind of the, the good calls were like inching you closer and like the calls that weren't as productive were like kind of make you question like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. And I think so much of the early stage founder journey has got to be centered around like your own personal burn rate. Like, you know, it's like, are you in a situation where your life or like you could either like live on your savings somehow or like, I don't know, get a get a part time drive job driving Uber at night and, and just kind of being like, how long can you last before you you know what you need to do? And and for us, I think that was right around, you know, nine, nine, ten months with, you know, the cash flow started, you know, becoming an issue. But we were able to kind of hang it out, you know, hang out there and, and hang in there to be able to learn. And, and so. Uh, lots of moments where like, 
okay, one out of 10 people have are synthesizing what we're saying and we're showing them charts and maybe little clickable prototypes and people are like, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. If I squint sideways and kind of understand it, I think <laughs> I get it. And, and it's been so interesting to watch now that like, you know, half the people we talk to in a sales engagement, they're like, yep, I know about the company. I know about this space. I know what you're doing. And that's like, you build a brand eventually, but when you get started, you have nothing. Yeah. I mean, you could either exist or not exist in the market really, you know, has no preference because you're just like nothing. Right. And you start really from nothing. And then it's been such a joy to, to have, you know, such an incredible like marketing team also now, like pushing the brand out of Link Squares at like a massive scale. And it's just been one of these rewarding things. I'll always look back at that time and say like, wow, we did it. Yeah, we did it. I don't know what will happen in the future, but we, we really did it. We did something we set out to do, which is it's incredible. That's been the most incredible, rewarding part of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, being around my own business and then now being around so many founders, it does feel like a miracle when one makes it, you know, whether the miracle was they didn't give up or the miracle was that the thing came together in time before they ran out of cash, you know, like it really is kind of a special journey. And you mentioned a few things that I think are critical for the people listening. One is you really took your time in doing your own discovery. And yeah. making sure that if you were going to build something that you actually had a real problem that you understood and that you were even understanding the solution to it. But then the second challenge is once you got that information, you also then had to educate the market, right? Where they're educating you first and then you're having to educate them to, right. Hey, this is, this exists and this is what we have for you. And this is what we've, we've created. Do you like this? Uh, yeah. Talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, People who have never done this, they may have a different perception of how do you do it, right? In the early days, but, you know, day zero, day 10, right? Which is you take a problem, you build a solution, you go and approach customers with a solution, right? But that's like a path of failure. And knowing that it's like you have a problem, you go to the customer first just to validate it. Like, do you agree with me? Do I understand you? Do I understand what you're trying to solve for in a... I only work in B2B companies because I don't know anything about what consumers do. I don't even know what I buy. I don't even know how I buy things, you know, whatever. Like, yeah. Um, so from a B2B standpoint, it's really like, how well do you know your buyer? Like, do you know uh, what their motivations are? Do you know how they were trained, educated? Do you know how they mm -hmm. think of themselves? Do you know what they're trying to accomplish in their role? Do you, do you know, are they on the power line of the executive team? Are they above it or below it or... Are they in the good graces of the CEO and the CFO? Like, how do they, how do they even use the general counsel? I mean, we didn't even know, but that's the level of detail. You have to really, you know, your ideal customer profile, your ideal customer persona, you have to spend so much time just continually validating that I understand you. And so like maybe the first 25 calls, we were just picking up on these tidbits of like dealing with third party paper and negotiations and projects where I have to go and look at 5,000 documents manually and dump it into a spreadsheet and to produce some answer for an audit or produce an answer to, because my CFO said so, right? And, and then it was like, after you kind of get through, after you get through that, then the next 25 calls, it's like, you're showing up and you're just like talking the language. It's yeah. like, hey, I, I've, I've learned some Mandarin Chinese, like I'm not a fluent speaker, like, but I can hang in there with like conversational phrases, like, yeah. like where's the bathroom and how do you get a beer? And like, like uh, I want to order chicken off the menu. It's like, you just started to get better at speaking Mandarin Chinese. And then 
And then by the time you talk to a hundred people, like you're, you're on the call and just saying like, Oh, how do you deal with third party paper? And like, like, how do you deal with like internal audits of contracts and how do you get access to this information today? And it just spirals on itself. Cause you just kept on learning and then you were refining your pitches and, and then eventually it's just like build software now, like, okay, here's all the problems. Here's all, you know, let's go now product manage, like what solution space can solve these problems. And, thinking about Henry Ford, right? People wanted faster horses. They didn't want a car, right? And so then it's like, where can we use innovation? Which is like, in our case, was like AI. Like, yeah. You know, like a machine learning algorithm could read this contract for you. Like it could, like hypothetically, that's something that exists. That's language processing, right? Natural language processing. And I attribute some of that to just like, I have a curious mind. Like I'm a technologist. Like I studied engineering in college. Like it's like, I have that part of my brain where I'm just like, oh, NLP, I'll just start reading about it every night. And then it's like, okay, well, it, it hypothetically could work. It's an academic topic. Um, all right, now how do you turn it into a product? And that's been like some of the fun that we've had over the last couple of years. I love it. I love it. You know, I resonate a lot with that. For I told you a little bit about our background before we got on the podcast. But when we started this podcast, we, had, we were forced to get clarity on a lot of things. You know, when we lost a good bit of our business overnight with the lockdowns, we realized some of the vulnerabilities that our business had. And one was not a very clear target. We had a wide variety of clients. So we had Fortune 500 giant companies. We had the solopreneur that we were supporting. And then we had some fast growing companies. And we looked at them and said, who's our favorite? Who do we feel most positioned to help? And it was the fast growing company. And then we realized, well, because we've been spread out, we only have a limited knowledge of really the ins and outs of all the questions you were talking about. And so we started this podcast. And like you said, after like 25 interviews, I was like, I think I kind of get how they think and what their issues are. And then by like the 50th interview, I was able to start to talk to them in a, in a way that they kept saying, that's it. Yeah, that's exactly what we're experiencing. Yeah, that's exactly the stage we're in. And I felt unbelievable. You know, it, like you said, it was like you were speaking that language. You had insider knowledge. And it made me think of... Um, Who's the guy that wrote the negotiation book, uh, Never Split the Difference? Chris Voss. Yeah, he yeah, talks sure. about anytime you can articulate to someone the world as they see it or their perspective, and you get them to say, that's right, there's an immediate connection they feel with you. There's right. this, this, this bond of like, you get me, right? Yeah. And to be able to have that with a customer is unbelievable, I would imagine. I, mean, I think Chris Voss is so great. His masterclass is so great. And watching his masterclass, let's just talk about like negotiations and stuff like that. But you're absolutely right. And <clears throat> I got it. like 99% of those conversations never led to a dollar of revenue. Right. But it led to like the foundation of thousands of other conversations. And then we started hiring people to come in the business. And it's like, here's what we know. This, this could be like, you know, 75% of it is right or 50% of it is right. It's not zero. Here's what we know. And then it was like, here, here's what we know. And also we've got 10 customers paying us. And it's like, okay, we can get to 10 and we can get to hundred and then you get to hundred, you can get to 500 and get to 500. And now we still believe it. We can get to a thousand customers because we just, just figured out, did the hard stuff. That's the hard stuff. You know, the yeah. hard, the hard things about hard things is, is like in this world is like doing the things that set yourself up to have product market fit. And when it's not working, it's like, how many assumptions did you make that you didn't validate? You know, do you have to validate every single assumption that you have? And you have to have only more data points. 
statistical significance, right? That's the engineering. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the that's the scientific method kind of terms. You have to gain statistical significance over time, where where the statistical significance actually gives you the confidence that okay, now I'm going to go spend whatever money I don't have that's coming out of a 401k or some savings account to go and build this product on my own dime, right? Yeah. Even though we raised $161.5 million through five rounds of venture capital, like eventually it started with just like, you know, I borrowed $25,000 from my dad. Well, I didn't borrow it. I mean, he was like, okay, we'll take it. But, you know, we'll work it out later. <laughs> and uh, that's how we got started. And then, wow. and then it was just like, it went from there. So it, it's just like, so important to, as people listening to this, it's like, you rush to the solution and you don't know for sure. You're going to just waste time. You're going to waste money, you know, time you may not have Yeah, you know, money. You may not definitely probably don't have. Right. So the thing I find difficult with that, and it feels like a personality issue is many entrepreneurs are hard chargers. They, they want to be there yesterday. You know, they have a vision. They want to go accomplish Me the too. vision. Exactly. And the idea of slowing down and taking time to validate and all that kind of stuff just sounds painstakingly boring or slow and logically we know in many ways we have to slow down to speed up right but it feels like an opposite energy did you experience that of like i just want to press go i just want to go get revenue and totally i I remember we used to show up at this co-working space i used to we had grudge in there monday morning and it's been like a long week and we didn't make the progress we wanted and it's just like all right man all right, Chris, my co-founder, you're still still with me here at Link Square is like, all right, man, we just gotta go back at it now. Like, and and I, you know, I'm a diehard like, you know, New England Patriots fan and growing up in New England my whole life. And like they're my like favorite sports team out of all the sports teams. Go Celtics though, you know, kind of yeah, in the yeah, finals. You're so always in the finals. But <laughs> but it's like you you learn you learn about like you know Belichick, you learn about what he, you know, how he talks about it. It's like, well, you gotta prove it every week, you gotta have a short memory. It's like you threw a pick. All right. It's not the end of the world. We got to, got to keep right. going. Right. You, something didn't work the way that you, we want. Right. Yeah. It's like, we're, we're on to the next week. You have to be on to the next week. And if it, all these journeys that are worth doing, they're so hard in the, in the early stage, they're just, mm. they're impossibly hard. They're, they're, they're set up that way to be impossibly hard. And, and eventually like what you said in the, in the initial part, it's like the people who don't give up and they keep learning and keep changing and keep, redoing their assumptions list they're the people that make it right yeah. and the hardest work of now we have 300 employees and we'll probably have wow. 500 employees by the end of the year like we're doing almost 25 million of annual recurring revenue like how many companies have done that we did one to ten in two years like one to ten million AR in two years like it's all underpinned on the fact that we solved the right problem in the early days and we're still still at the same thing like now that is cemented it is never to be broken like that fundamental understanding of who this buyer is and what they need. And we just got better at, at building on top of that cement. Yeah. All right. So that I, I want to play a, a game, not really a game, but like if almost like a creative exercise, if, if you were to look at the story of going from just you and a co-founder to now 300 employees, I, how my brain works is I almost see it as chapters. Like you already mentioned a chapter. Maybe it was the first two years that chapter was going from zero to 10 million. And (laughs) you go from maybe two founders to 10 people and then 10 to 25. Like 
Take me through some of the chapters as you see it of going from no, you know, just the two of you to 300 people and 25 million in revenue. The, the one to, the one to 10 million journey actually has many chapters that are really fascinating. So the first chapter is the chapter zero, which is just the founders, like just grinding it out, trying to learn. The next chapter was like, we started having customers and we had like five at the end of year one and we had 25 at the end of year two. And then that was the, the second kind of phase is the, the journey to 1 million of ARR recur annual recurring revenue. And what it took just to get there is like Chris and I running sales, like luckily my co-founder had actually worked in sales kind of teams and had to had that was like the right brain, left brain. Like I was the tech guy and he was the sales account management guy. And we just kind of glued together and said, we're just going to make it work. And um, getting to a million ARR was just like, whoa, this is, this is really great. How many we people had, were on the know, team at that point? Maybe 20 were... people, 15, 20 people. Okay. We had, we had then raised a $4.8 million seed round and we had done like an angel round before like 1.6 million or like 2 million bucks. And then we did the real VC round 4.8 million showing like, Hey, we almost have a million ARR. We have 30 customers or whatever, right? This thing is real. Like it can keep going. Like we, again, you just know more than when you started. It's two years later, you just know more, right? The year, uh, it was uh, 2019, we added 124 new customers Whoa. and we went one to 4 million in one year. And it was super natural. Like I had hired my VP of sales, Steve, who's now a CRO of the company. And he had come in and he had kind of brought in some fresh talent on the sales team and people that he kind of handpicked. And, and it just started happening. And the product was kind of getting to like a maturity place. And, and the AI was like, became very real. It started actually working like, hey, we could do 10 values out of the box algorithmically. And like, you know, effective data and who the parties are. And does it auto renew? It's like, great. And that year was just supernatural. And you learned in that year that like things just started breaking. Like the way we did onboardings was just breaking. We got 50 customers to onboard this month. It's like we had only ever onboarded like 10. So then you start learning about scale, right? Like, like doing things at like three times the size that you used to do them at. You know, you saw onboard nine customers a month. Now you're onboarding 27 customers a month. You're you're onboarding 30 customers a month. And the underpinning in which you you had an assumption that this technology that does our onboarding behind the scenes would keep scaling and working to infinity, that breaks. And then it's like, you know, we're driving down the road and all of a sudden we got a flat tire and it's like, oh, pull over, pull over quick, change the tire, change the tire. Okay, keep going, keep going, right? And then it eventually like, you can't even stop. You're like changing a car tire while the, the tire is, you know, still, still spinning. It's and then you become just better at, Okay, don't don't dip your elbow down on the cement, otherwise you're gonna take off a you know two inches of your elbow <laughs> that you might need. And you just get better at just solving problems quick, 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 right? And it's chaos, right? It's just like that that whole chapter, like if I were to name that chapter, that chapter is like chaos. Like um good chaos, but still chaos and uh long days, like long days, and you're just doing everything you can. And then and then the next year kind of, you know, we we doubled again, like we got we went like four to eight million and then I had raised $15 million in the Series A and we get more people coming in, right? Then eventually it's just like, what part of the business needs a human being to own it? Let's go and hire someone to own that part so that we can cut off like another 10, extra 10% of our work day. It's like, we're currently working 300% and this is just unsustainable for our personal yeah. lives too. Okay, carve off 20%, give it to someone else, carve off another 20%. 
give it to someone else, right? Then you start working your way down to like, okay, I can work at like 200% capacity, but I can't work at 300% capacity for any much longer. Um, yeah, and then and then kind of dealing with the pandemic and dealing with uncertainty in 2020. And and then we we hit we hit 10 million ARR, 1,873 days from when we got our first dollar. Wow. And that was like a moment where it was like, oh my God, we dreamed about this day. We dreamed about this day the entire time that we would make it to 10 million ARR. And on a percentage basis, I think it's like half a percent of all companies who try can make it there. Sure. And it was like, whoa, God, that is, I mean, we're 99 percentile type company. And then once we hit the 10 million ARR, it's like, we can 10X, we can keep doing this. And and then the next 10 million block of ARR came in like under 300, like 300 days, right? It's like, then you start thinking about how fast it's going, right? Yeah. It's like the first, the first 10 million ARR took 1,800 days. The next 10 million ARR took a 305, 301 days or something like that. Now we're in like the next 10 million ARR block. It's going to be like 200 days. And then it'll eventually be like, we're doing 10 million ARR in a quarter. Like you're adding 10 million AR in one quarter. Why do you, you think really that start, is? Why do you oh, think it's those... just it's just how we accelerate, right? Then it's all about like how do you make this thing go faster, like everywhere, right? It's it's all kind of like more humans. Like you you have more humans, you take on more humans, you set bigger targets. And that's kind of a venture capital game too. A, a lot has got to do with your ability to command and when you make a forecast, you turn your forecast into actuals, right? And when those actuals are what you want them to be across a number of different metrics, like you have control of the future. Like eventually the game becomes you're out of survival mode and yeah. you're into like optimizing the future. Like everything we're doing this quarter is a byproduct of something we planned last year. Mm. And so then my job really changes. Like now my job is really changing to now I think about next June. What are we going to do next June? And how do we land that plane next June, right? At the end of Q2 for us, right? Like what is Q2 going to look like? And now my job is like controlling the future and the strategy. It massively changes, right? And we when go did through you feel that shift? When did you feel that shift from I'm no longer in survival mode, I'm actually just forecasting the future? Right around when, when we kind of reached 10 million ARR and, and there were big parts of making revenue happen and products kind of be built that I didn't have to do myself. We have so many great folks, right? Like we hired our own in-house legal team. So like I no longer have to fake being general counsel. Yeah. Like I, I hired a chief legal officer and he's just like, I got it. I got it. I got all the NDAs you need. I got all the vendor agreements you need. I got, I'll, I'll just do it. I mean, I'm just, I just do this professionally. And I'm like, okay, you need my help? And he's like, no, I'm good, man. You go do something else. And it was like, okay, cool. Well, that's great. I don't, I don't have to fake being our general counsel with like, you know, an outside counsel, you know, helping us do red lines because a lot of our deals we have to do red lines on negotiating against the lawyers. But um, that was that. And eventually, like, you know, the sales team had seen every variation of order form we ever had to make, every play that we had to run, like, like they know how to do, you know, 14 month deals for the price of 12 and how to do that in our sales force and get all the, you know, line items correct and the discounts and whatever, like, then eventually it's just like, well, we don't even show up for order forms anymore. And I was like, well, that's great. I've trained enough people. They can just, they've seen every variation and I've solved every variation with them. And it's like you, you, you train someone up to take the job over and then you give it to them. And then I go and do something else. Right. And yeah. 
And that when it really became like um, this quarter is ending, I haven't negotiated one deal. I haven't helped on one order form. And then eventually it's like security questionnaires and the security process of buying. It's like we have then eventually trained people up. My CTO and I used to do the security pieces for years. Then it's like all three of these components, red lines, order forms, security, we no longer have to do. And that's when it was really like, okay, hey, it's happening without me. I'm just kind of kind of roll, but I'm here if you need me. But yeah. I'm just like, I'm cool. Like, I'm just going to let you all do your thing. Like, text me. Text me if you need me. Call me if it's urgent. But you got it. You got it. And that was when we, that was a great moment to just know that people got it. And they're working as hard as the founders and the founding team has worked. And that has really been the joy. It's been incredible to see. How do you know? So rewarding. How do you know? And I know you probably didn't know at the moment, but looking back, how do you know when it's time for you to delegate, when it's time for you to no longer be the critical piece that's doing the sales, that's doing the legal work? What's the indicator to you? Well, the business performs in a year period. And for us, that was you know raising more money. And raising more money buys you luxuries, right? And then when you, when you didn't have $15 million in the bank account and now you have it, it's like, what are the people we need to hire that can help us go further in you know, deeper subject matter expertise. And, you know, they could, they could run a customer success strategy better than us just kind of dreaming up what great customer success is and being in survival mode. And so you, you don't do it all at once. Like you chip away at it, right? Like, you know, I was kind of like hiring one executive at a time, right? Like I hired my CTO first. He was the first executive land. Right. And so my co-founder and my CTO, and then, you know, I hired a product manager that eventually became the, the top person in the entire company, right? But he grew up in the company over five years, right? Domain knowledge. And, you know, then we hired, you know, a CMO to run marketing. And then, you know, we had hired a VP of sales before and a CMO to run marketing. And then, you know, then it's like, okay, great. Well, we're not going to be able to raise, you know, $40 million or $15 million from real VCs without a CFO mm. that, that has all the answers to gap revenue and accounting and SaaS accounting and sales tax and all this stuff. It's like, okay, hire a CFO and you just kind of, kind of build the squad. And my job is like Danny Ocean. Like I'm supposed to put together the squad to re, to, to, uh, to uh, rob the casino, right? I get to play Danny Ocean. And that's, it's, that's so wonderful. Like it's now wonderful that they're the ones doing the work. They're the ones, you know, in the, in the Ocean's 11 movie, you know, wiring the, wiring the uh, EMP that they got the electricity and hiding in the box. And, yeah. and it's, it's great. And I can kind of just That's a see them analogy. and support them. And, and, you know, my job as CEO now has massively changed. Like I only focus on what is important. I just drive the what in the company, what, 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 what do we need to do? What do our metrics need to look at? What does the product need to evolve to? What are we hearing in the market? What tail, what headwinds are we getting? What tailwinds are pushing us? Like I'm responsible for the what, and communicating the what very concretely. Hey, what on this year? What on this quarter? What on this month? They already know all that stuff anyways. So we build a plan together. But And then never tell anyone how to do the how. Because I did my job. I hired six, seven experts who worked for me on the exec team. They went and hired their own experts. So I don't need to tell. I don't need to prescribe the how. Yeah. We can debug if you know someone's how to solve something is not working. You know, I can, I can ask questions. I can help break ties. I can help cheerlead and coach and, you know, Hey, this, this thing sucked. It didn't go the way we wanted. What can we do? What do we learn? Like my job is not the what anymore. And it's like, it changes. It changes from like, you're doing everything. You're the what and the how 
you spend a lot more time on the how in the early days because it's just chaos and survival mode and it kind of transitions into the what now like you know it's like i just just think about the future and i think about what what's important and let the get out of the way <laughs> that's a big thing so get out good. of the way that's so good i got one question for you that's kind of relevant to the to the current times we're in before we dive into the lightning round but I'm curious at what you think we could learn about what's happening in the tech scene right now. You know, there's a lot of blood in the water. You know, yeah. there was a huge, many would say, mistake in these overvaluations that maybe are yeah. all hitting down rounds now and, you know, many are folding and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. In your mind, from being in this world, you've raised plenty of money, you're in the tech scene. What do you think we should learn or could learn from what's happening right now? Yeah, first thing is raising money is not real life. I say that to a lot of younger founders that younger on the journey founders that I mentor through whatever ways I find them and they find me really. Uh, raising money is not real life. Raising money is a reflection of some progress you've made on a thesis you're trying to prove. Some actual results that continue to validate your thesis is headed to the right direction. But raising money alone is not real life. It's an imaginary extra thing that happens that is not a reflection of your future. Well, they're betting on your future, right? VCs right. bet on your future, but it's not real life. It's more like it's more like bottled water. Like we need water as humans to survive, right? Without water, you can't live. You got to drink a certain amount of water a day. You get, your organs are going to shut down, right? Right. And if your business needs cash to, to validate, you know, we needed cash. We couldn't bootstrap this thing, right? The AI journey alone took PhDs and data scientists and machine learning experts and AWS infrastructure experts. Like we just couldn't bootstrap that. I mean, that's millions of dollars of salaries that we needed to pay to even conceptualize the innovation that we wanted to do. That's us. Other people are in different scenarios, right? But taking money from VCs is like, it's like bottled water. Now, the rest of it is just marketing. Like you want water from France, it's Evian. You know, you want water that has volcanic minerals in it, that's Fiji, right? You want smart water because Jennifer Aniston's been drinking it and she looks great. You know, I don't know. You know, she hasn't aged a day since she was on Friends. Like <laughs> that's so true. most of it is just like marketing, right? Like yeah. a lot of the VC stuff is marketing and, and don't get too wrapped up into the marketing of like, we're going to help you do everything like we're going to give you a million introductions into our portfolio we're going to we're going to drive 10 million dollars of arr into your business and we're going to be so helpful when you need help and not to say that people aren't helpful but like you also have to know that none of it is contractually obligated they're just trying to do it to help themselves right like, yeah yeah you know and i think people had a kind of mismatched understanding of what raising money was or is right now the old gray beards who like survived like oh one like oh eight like the old gray beards like you know some of my senseis in the Boston scene and elsewhere like they're like oh yeah oh yeah run you got to run a business on like some sort of on, this is the second thing some sort of underpinned like value creation like you yeah, have something basics. of value like the fundamentals like you have mm -hmm. revenue you know how you can get the revenue you know how you can get more of it you you. You know how much it costs you spend a dollar in sales and marketing to generate a dollar of revenue. How much, like, what is that? Like, yep. um, I think a lot of people lost sight of underneath the venture capital sheen, the velour of the, of the venture capital, the calf leather, like below it is just a slab of concrete that is, that is like unit economics, like CAC payback. It's, 
burn rate. It's efficiency of your sales program. It's your percentage that you spend on R&D as it relates to how much revenue you have. Like, I think people lost sight of all of that. And, and it was kind of like, it was kind of like, uh, I have a, I have a three-year-old, right? And so <laughs> I have a three-year-old and my three-year-old just kind of keeps doing whatever she wants to do. Right. And, you know, me and my wife as, as her parents are going to be like, okay, here's the line. Like you, you got to stop, right? Like, you know, you can't, you can't do this. Right. You know, there's no way you can climb up on the counter and, and, and try to juggle knives. Like this is a bad idea. Like don't, <laughs> you can't, you can't do this. Right. But I think at some respect, like there was no kind of like, you know, telling the, telling the companies, telling the toddlers that you, you can't do this anymore. Yeah. Right. It was just more like, do whatever you want. You want to juggle knives here, take a circular saw while you're at it. And yep. then, you know, now the, the impact of that kind of double-sided recklessness, like founders are like, well, let's just do it because we can. And look, the company's worth a billion dollars, but that's actually not worth a billion dollars by any metric you can probably squeeze, you know, squint your eyes and even try to convince yourself that. Yep. Like you're doing, you're doing a rounded 80X ARR current. Like 80x, 90x, 100x ARR. You're Crazy. a 10 million ARR business doing a deal at a billion valuation. It's like think about, like think about a what that meant for you. It felt great when you were doing it. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah you the felt vanity so of it. great. But then it's like you know paying a big bill. Like you know, feels great to go to Louis Vuitton and spend twenty five thousand dollars on fancy stuff if that's your bag, right? If that's your deal but it sucks to pay the credit card bill. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, the credit card bills are coming paid now. Right. And, and I think what it's going to do is it's going to give credit to companies that have been running with strong unit economics. It's definitely going to break the Silicon Valley sheen of like, my office is somewhere between San Jose and Berkeley on the one one Like, and because of that, I've been able to walk in the door at any VC and just say, I have a dream and that dream is you paying 75 X my ARR. And I think that is going to end. It's yeah. ended now. Right. And out of the kind of chaos are going to be real fundamental, good businesses that will still be able to raise at great prices. Right. You know, back in the day, Drew, I'm sure you heard this 10 X current 10 X current ARR was like phenomenal. Like, yeah. Awesome. You just think about doing 10x. Amazing. Amazing. And you had a chance of actually living up to that valuation. You had the chance. That's the other thing, growing into your valuation, right? Yeah. Now that everything is down by 60, 50, 60%, right? It's like now you have to do twice as much, four times as much revenue. And you're and it's just gonna create scenarios where, like, you know, companies like Instacart and BlockFi, like they are they are now preemptively downgrading their valuation. Like Instacart is trying to go public, but they can't go public at, I don't know, whatever it was, 40 billion of, of uh, valuation. They're actually preemptively downgrading themselves, hmm. like, you know, 27 or 25, whatever the article, I may get the numbers wrong. So Instacart uh, folks, sorry if I butchered your uh, statistics, but um, <laughs> it's super interesting. Like the companies that are like, well, hey, it is what it is. Uh, we, we want to stay around and survive. So we're going to kind of preemptively cut our hand off now and say, I'm sorry. Yeah. And um, again, focusing on real economics, real unit economics, just it, it's everything. It, it was never not anything. It was never not everything. It was always everything. 
It's just people got too obsessed with, you know, this water is like, you know, getting very expensive, but you know, at the end of the day, this is like, everyone just has capital. They're trying to give you. Yeah. And I don't know, you got hooked on the wrong stuff, you know, trying to do things that are unnatural, take an ADX, 90X ARR and stuff. So no, it's sad. sad. It's sad. You know, the economic impact of it is sad. There are real people are going to lose their jobs. You know, Coinbase yesterday, right? 1,100 people. That's 1,100 people. Oh, I didn't and know like, that. Yeah, Coinbase, 1,100 people, um, 18% of their workforce. Wow. And, and when I think of the responsibility I bear as CEO, you know, I have 300 people who depend on us to pay their bills and take care of their parents and support their wife or support their kids. And, you know, I don't know, we have 30 kids on our health insurance, right? It's like, it's like, that's a big responsibility for, for people messing around with like Fugazi valuations and, you know, things that are not real. Like it's going to have a massive, it's going to have a massive impact on hundreds of thousands of people. It's unfortunate, right? All because people got obsessed with the wrong stuff, how much the company is worth. It's not real life. Yeah. (laughs) It's not real life. And that's the sad part of it. Right. But Hey, Linscores is hiring across the, Every department, and, and if you've been displaced by, you know, crazy events that have occurred, you know, come reach out to us, you know, lots of, lots of roles remote also. So let's go. That's a great way. <laughs> that's a great way to wrap that up. But we're hiring. We're doing well. <laughs> uh, let me ask this. If someone is thinking about, you know, raising capital, I know right now is a terrible time to do it, but if they want to prepare for it, is there any book or any resource that you think um, educates, would educate them in a way that is really helpful? Yeah, I would I would tell you that it depends on the stage, Drew. It's not all terrible. Like pre-seed and seed rounds, they basically are acting like the way the, the way they they were before huh. before this massive correction. Like pre-seed companies, so like no revenue, kind of like you know some thesis, those will get funded. Seed rounds will still get funded, right? I think as you're preparing to show like a two-year forward financial model of like what your company is going to do. You, you have to show like a lot more capital efficiency too. that like, if we get our burn rate in check, right? Founders have often raised on the thinking like, I'm going to raise a bucket of money. It's going to last 18 to 24 months. But the people who have spent it faster that, you know, the capital less, lasted less than 18 months. So like that can't happen anymore. And I don't even think it's 18 months. I think you should think about capital like two years. If you have the access to raise capital right now for your business, that can let you live for two years through this storm. Yep. Do it. Do yep. it. Do it at a fair price. Don't ever think about the dilution. Don't ever think about what your ego tells you. Like you are default alive, and a lot of people are not. Mm. Right now, that's the pre-seed seed rounds. Right. Hey, you know what? Do two seed rounds. Do two seed. Do three seed rounds. Do four seed rounds. Who cares? Seed can be as long as you want it to. You know, I've seen companies do three seed rounds, four seed rounds, right? Just get a little bit more capital. Don't worry about the prices. Listen, company's not going to be worth anything. You're going to own 80% of a company that's worth zero, right? Like who cares, right? You can't think of dilution now. Now dilution is like, dilution is what got us into this mess, right? Hmm. Um, Series A is still the hardest round, in my opinion. Um, You're kind of like an awkward teenager. You're not a child, but you're also not a full-fledged adult. Like you're in this awkward teenage phase. Like you got traction, things are working. The business is not scaled massively. Like, yeah, Series A already, you know, four out of five seed companies try to raise the A, you know, through statistics can't do it, right? So only one out of five make it. It's an 80% attrition rate. 
Mm. And that was in like kind of bull, you know, bull markets. Like think about it. It's got to be worse than one out of five. Yeah. So seed rounds, seed round again, I don't know, do another seed round, right? Or try, try on the A, but know that people are going to have a lot of scrutiny over your financial model. You can no longer kind of half-ass your financial model. Like hire a fractional CFO, go pay the money, go on TopTal or use one of these fractional CFO networks so you can get a real expert, build you a no shit real financial model that is very, very detailed of like cash coming in, payments going out, vendor spend, salaries, like, you know, the other costs, you know, uh, health insurance, benefits, all that stuff. Build a really good model that you have confidence in, right? You need that more than ever, right? Um, and then B rounds, C rounds, D rounds, it's all about cash burning efficiency, right? It's like you're burning a dollar of cash a month and what are you getting out of it on a revenue basis, right? You know, it's like, is your burn rate so high that the business actually has no, you can't see the bottom. It's just like a limitless money pit, right? And you see these companies like Fast was one of them. You know, they're spending $10 million a month in burn. And they have 600,000 of ARR. They're spending $10 million a month wow. in burn. And like that is, a, that is the most extreme example of what not to do. You know, and you try to look at it like one for one, right? Like, okay, um, we burned a dollar and we are like, we burned 20 million bucks and we got to 20 million of ARR by the end of the year. That's a great ratio. Then maybe next year you're like, okay, we're going to burn $30 million and we're going to get to 40 million of ARR. Now it's like your ratio is getting better, right? You're getting yeah. more output for the, you know, a little bit, a little bit more burn, but not like one for one. And then like, you know, the next year is it's like, we're going to burn, you know, 50 cents and we're going to get a dollar ending ARR, right? Then it gets even better. The thing showing efficiency, but they desire this kind of efficiency to happen. You have to show that efficiency path now and, and it's going to be hard, especially if you did a B 18 months ago at, you know, 80X your ARR. And now you're looking at the C and you needed to show up with 150 million at ARR and you only have like, I don't know, 30. It's, <laughs> it's like a pretty bad, it's like a pretty bad scenario. And I guess founders are going to have to decide, can you deal with the ego bruise? You know, especially late stage, can you deal with the ego bruise? You take a, take a piece out of Instacart's playbook. They cut their valuation by like 40, 40%. Mm. Right. Can, if Instacart can do it, like, can you do it? Can you live with it? Like, cause your other option is it just goes under the journey's over all your hard work, all the, you know, zero to one stuff that you and I were talking about at the start of it. You yep. lose all that time. You get nothing out of it. And then I think the other thing drew is like, if you, if you're got to be pragmatic about it, you got to find a buyer then, you know, go engage with investment banks, like go, Go go to M and A advisory groups. There's a, there's a million of them, right? They're always in my email every single day. Like, hey, do you want to sell the company? I'm like, no, no, we're good, man. Just email someone else. But um, you may have to contemplate finding a buyer, right? Either finding a buyer or raising another round of capital will be a ton of work. Yeah, it'll just be a ton of work. But you kind of got to decide. Like, are people kind of done with the journey? And it's like the founding team is tired, and it's like you know we kind of it didn't quite work the way we want. You know, now's the time to be honest with yourself, right? Signing up for another venture capital round in a business that doesn't have the kind of metrics to be able to do it. It's like probably pretty bad. Yeah. It's going to be a long, hard road. Um, and then look internally, like maybe you can cut some of the product out and kind of double down on one use case that was actually working really well. 10 others were kind of working so, so, and 
maybe you kind of strip the other stuff out and just kind of focus on one, you know, focus on the thing that's working. But it's going to take a lot of bold people making a lot of hard decisions in the next kind of two years to figure out if you're going to survive or not. So, yeah, I'm so glad I asked that question. That was much better than the lightning round. So we're for <laughs> your time and for mine. I'm, I'm just going to cut the lightning round out because, again, <laughs> right now I want so many people to listen to just even the education you just gave me on how to even be thinking about different stages of investments and what we're seeing and the lessons we're learned. That was very insightful. Um, I want to end with this. If someone either needs your services or is looking to potentially apply to work for you and your company, where should we send them? Sure. Just visit us at linsquares.com or, or check us out on LinkedIn and, and we'd be happy to chat with you. Heck yeah. Well, Vishal, this has been great, my friend. Thank you for making time and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you for having me, Drew. Take care. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.